for joining me in prayer for that. I know that's a heavy thing for us, and I hope that you'll encourage one another in these things and others as you have an opportunity this week to talk about these things with family and friends and coworkers. Uh, we're going to turn our attention today to Ruth, which is printed in your bulletin, large sections of that to make you read out loud together. Uh, but in, before we jump into that, I want to give a brief uh, plug for the Gift of Gender seminar that we're hosting this coming weekend. This will be Friday night from 6 to 8 p.m. and Saturday morning from 8.30 to noon. And this is really set up for us as a community to come around and talk together about a very complex issue, which is very personal to us, how we identify ourselves, in a culture that's also very confused about these things and offers lots of different voices. Uh, my friend, Dr. Sam uh, Andreatis, is coming in, he and his wife, for this, uh, this weekend to do this. Uh, Sam, we met, Susan and I met Sam and Mary Kay when we were at the assessment center to plant a church in 2001. We were there over 9-11, just really strange set of circumstances. But that's when we met this couple, and we went off to plant a church in downtown Philadelphia. They moved right after this from Washington, D.C. to an area of New York City called Greenwich Village. And immediately they were thrown into trying to reach out to a community where transgenderism, gender dysphoria, uh, the homosexual community, all, all of this was right in the cauldron of their uh, environment they were ministering in. And they really worked hard to try to figure out what does it mean for us to love and care for our neighbors. Uh, Sam piloted a program called GAME, which is an, um, stands for Gender Affirming Ministry Endeavor, which was uh, a, a way of trying to engage their neighbors and love their neighbors around these topics. And so they've done a lot of work over a long period of time thinking about helping the church equip itself, uh, helping us to think about what does it mean to love all our neighbors. And so we're really excited to bring uh, Sam in. He is not flustered by any question. So he's great for people who are coming here like, I don't like that we're talking about this, or people who are like, I need to talk about this. He's good for all of that. And we encourage you to come. Uh, we still have some sign-up space available but it's going to fill up. And so if you want to register, you can follow the QR code in the bottom of your bulletin to that. We hope you'll come. We hope you'll bring a friend. We hope you'll bring middle schoolers and high schoolers. It's very appropriate for those age groups. Uh, this is a great opportunity. And we're also going to have Sam come and meet with our youth on Sunday night next week too. So we're really grateful to be having an opportunity to host this as a church. And I hope you'll take an opportunity to sign up for that. Along with that seminar, um, we are doing a preaching series on gender in the body of Christ called Co-Laborers, Co-Heirs. And today we're going to look at the Old Testament book of Ruth. And I hope that you'll pay attention to what we're doing as we pick the various uh, passages we're looking at in this. This is not, let me say this again, this is not a marriage series. The, all of our relationships uh, are, are affected by gender. And so last week, uh, the passage we looked at was a sibling relationship. Next week, we're looking at a parent-child relationship. Today, we're looking at a marriage. Uh, in following weeks, we're going to look at ministry partner relationships and friendships. But all of our relationships are affected by gender because it's how, part of how we identify ourselves. So we're looking at this in a broad spectrum of ways. And today, we're going to look at the book of Ruth. Again, this is not a marriage sermon this isn't a marriage story. This isn't even a romance. This is not a love story. Um, 
So we're going to look at Ruth, and we're going to read here in a moment, but I want us to look at, think about two questions today that are going to frame our time. First, what stories does our culture tell about the Bible and gender? What stories does the Bible tell about us and gender? What stories does the culture tell about the Bible and gender? What stories does the Bible tell about us with regard to gender? So let's read together. We're going to read sections from Ruth uh, 1, 2, and 4. And I'll pause us at appropriate moments, but if you'll join your voice with me as we read God's Word aloud together. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to reside in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. So they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was left without her sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the land of Moab, because she had heard in the land of Moab the Lord had visited his people by giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find a place of rest, each one in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they raised their voices and wept. So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Ruth, And she became his wife, and he had relations with her. And the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you one who restores life and sustains your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What's the story that the culture tells us about this book with regard to gender? 
You know, I don't know about you, but I think that what I hear regularly is that the current storyline about this book is that this is a dangerous book, particularly for women. This is a patriarchal book. In fact, what we hear a lot is the Old Testament patriarchy, Jesus, lone good guy, New Testament patriarchy. And, and I want to ask that question, is that true? Is that really the problem that we're facing with regard to gender in our culture right now? Is, that, is the Bible the problem behind some of the abuses we've seen in leadership, in the church in particular? Is this behind some of the problems we see around men and women and identification? Is the Bible the problem? You know, if you've been around the things of Jesus very much, you've been around our church very much, you know that that's prob it's probably more complex than just that. Uh, in 1910, the London Times, the British newspaper, had a, ran a series of articles by eminent writers and thinkers of the day. And they, they had solicited a response to various, from, from various thinkers to this question. What's the biggest problem in the world today? What's wrong with the world? I got lots of responses to this. But most famously, the, the Christian and the Christian writer, G.K. Chesterton, responded with the shortest response. He wrote this, Dear Sirs, what's wrong with the world today? I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> now, I love that because Chesterton said a whole sermon in a couple words right there. He's representing a Christian worldview that the biggest problem are not all the bad people and the bad things out there, but it's in here. My own sin, my need for redemption, the gospel that comes to me through Jesus Christ, this is the great hope of the world, and this is the great problem. And, and why am I telling you that story with regard to talking about gender? Well, by extension, here's my point. I think our biggest problems with things like patriarchy and abusive leadership and the, the, the misogyny, even in the church, these are not from this book. These are in here. These have to do with what human beings in our hearts do with regard to how we distort gender. The Bible's not the problem. So what is the story? And I'm going to come back to that in a minute. We're not done with this, that question. But what's the story that the Bible tells us about us and gender? And I want to look this morning with you briefly at the book of Ruth because it gives us a really helpful word to think about the Bible's message with regard to gender. And I want to look at this under kind of four people, the four main characters of this story, and I know we just kind of read parts of it, so I'm going to tell you the story. So we'll start with the main character, Naomi. The book of Ruth actually isn't about Ruth, it's about Naomi. Um, and it tells the story of Naomi's family. And I'm going to help you out this morning by giving you uh, Naomi's family tree. Let's see if this works. Not working. Working. All right, family tree of Ruth and Naomi. So, Naomi is married to a man named Elimelech, and she has two adult sons named Kilion and Malon. And they live in Bethlehem, and it's, yeah, the same Bethlehem that you know of from the Christmas story. This is where Jesus is from. But there's a problem the book opens up with. There's a famine in Bethlehem. Now, that's meant to be 
ironic. Bethlehem means house of bread. There's a famine in the house of the bread. This is like there's a famine in the breadbasket of America. Right? And so immediately, Elimelech and Naomi, instead of staying put, they decide to move. And they don't decide to move to somewhere within Israel. They move out of Israel to Moab. Now, this is not like moving, you moving to Greensboro. Right? Moab is the enemy of Israel, number one. And it's a place that was very much against the worship of Yahweh as God. So they abandon the house of bread. They don't turn toward God in this. They turn away and they move down the road, not to Greensboro, but to Moab. And shortly in succession, what happens is what God had said would happen. If you move to a foreign place and intermix with the other people, both the sons marry Moabite women. Now, that sounds to us like, okay, they're from Moab. What's the big deal? Well, God had said, like, these people don't worship the living God. This is a problem. This is a, a point of uh, stumbling for God's people. So both of them marry Moabite women, one named Ruth, one named Orpah. And in close succession after this, this is why their skulls appear, Elimelech dies, Malon and Kilion die. The husband and the two sons die. And what this means is that Naomi is now a foreigner living in a foreign land without property, without husband, without income, without anyone to provide for her. You know, these were key at that time for women's survival. She's penniless and futureless, and she, so she did, decides, I only have one option, which is go back to Bethlehem. So she announces her plans to her two daughters-in-law, effectively saying goodbye to them. She tries to send them home. She's like, go back to your family of origin. They'll take care of you. Makes sense. And Orpah leaves. But at this point, I want you to notice like, where, how dark things are for Naomi. Naomi, at this point, changes her name. She changes her name from Naomi, which means pleasantness, to Mara, which means bitterness. That's not accidental. That's telling you what's going on on the inside. The despair, the like hopelessness about her future, the destitution. She says, actually, I went away full and came back empty. I went away with pleasantness. I came back with bitterness. But here is where the story gets good, because this story should end at this point, except for the second main character that the book's named after, Ruth. Ruth does the unexpected and pledges herself to her mother-in-law. She says the famous words, where you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Now, let's put this in marriage vow terms. Ruth is pledging herself to a destitute old woman. She's saying, in effect, for worse, not for better. For poorer, not for richer. In sickness, not in health. I'm tying my entire future to this woman. It makes no sense. And she goes on from this. Remember, Ruth is not a worshiper of Yahweh. But she makes this profound statement. She takes Yahweh's name and says, By Yahweh... By the Lord, all little capitals in your Bible, I pledge myself, your God will be my God. Your God will be my God. And even the words here about what she does is marriage vow words. She clings to Naomi. The same word from Genesis chapter 2 where it said, 
The husband will leave his family and cling unto his wife. It's the same word. Now, let me just stop there and make sure we're all on the same page. Because the people act like the book of Ruth is some kind of romance novel. Like it's a love story. But let me just remind you, Ruth doesn't make those vows to Boaz. She makes them to Naomi. This doesn't make any sense. This is not a love story at all. This isn't romance. This is a rescue story. This is a rescue story, and Ruth is key to this. So, Ruth and Naomi, and I have, let's read this. They returned to Bethlehem right at the time of the barley harvest. Dun, dun, dun. Because this is where things begin to change. Now, ancient Israel had a system of welfare that was written into the Pentateuch, the legal codes for Israel. And it went like this. If you're a landowner, you're harvesting your crops, don't harvest the edges of your field. You leave those for the poor. They can come along behind you and your workers and harvest that and take it home. That was the welfare system for Israel. Not everybody participated or did that, but that was what was God's intention. That was called Israelite welfare. So it happens that there's this man named Boaz, and it just so happens that he's wealthy, and it just so happens that he's single, but that's not the point. <laughs> the point is, he's just. He's a righteous man. He does Israelite welfare. He leaves the edges of his fields for the poor people to come along behind. So Naomi is too old to harvest. So she tells her Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth, I've got this distant cousin, Boaz. I hear he's a righteous man. Reputation is he's just. Go out in his field. And so Ruth goes and gleans behind the, the harvesters, cleans out the edges of the field. But Boaz notices Ruth and doesn't let her just take that. He invites her instead, come and sit down with us on our picnic blanket. He gives her food and he gives her a ridiculous amount of grain. He loads her up with what's about a 70-pound bag of barley at the end of this for her to go back home to Naomi and bring back to her. And See, here's where Naomi's fortunes begin to change. Her prospects are looking good. She's not alone. She has Ruth. She's not destitute. She has barley. But there's a problem still. She has no future. Now, in ancient times, family lineage was incredibly important in a way that we probably can't understand today. Today, if you have a family and your family line ends with you and there's no next generation, we're kind of like, okay, you know, that's not the end of the world. But in that time and place, to have no descendants come after you, to be forgotten was one of the worst things imaginable. And so here's the problem. What's going to happen to the family line of Elimelech? Now, we know something about this now. For example, my grandpapa Bradford. So grandpapa Bradford uh, was really excited when me and Susan started having boys. He's like, the family name, you know, the Bradford name will continue. And we, we kept having boys and he got, kind of got to a point where he's like, we have six, okay? So he's like, you know, enough's enough. Like, you're, you, we're okay now. We're secure with the family lineage. And Elimelech and Naomi's family have this problem. Two dead sons. Who's, what's going to happen to the family line? So Naomi encourages Ruth to approach Boaz again, and yet in another way. Naomi explains that Boaz is 
a kinsman redeemer. Yet another little legal uh, wrinkle that you need to know about from the Pentateuch. The kinsman redeemer is a provision where a male relative may sub in for a dead other male relative in order to make sure a family line continues and a family is provided for. So if a man dies, his brother can marry the widow and that the, the children that will come from that family line are considered the dead man's lineage. They're considered part of the lineage of the dead man. So he's given the opportunity, Boaz is going to be given an opportunity to act on behalf of a relative who's in trouble and danger and need in, in death, right? This is what's happening before. As I said before, it's almost impossible for to live in ancient times without a male guardian or husband. So the male relative, this is a provision by God to make sure that there's not destitution and a loss of family line. But it comes at a high cost. For Boaz to be the kinsman redeemer means two things. One is he's got to buy back all the property that belonged to Elimelech and Naomi's family, financial cost. Number two, he's got to take Ruth on as his wife. And Ruth goes to him directly and appeals to him at the scene midnight at the threshing floor. And Boaz agrees to do this. And again, let me emphasize, this isn't a romance. This isn't Boaz going like, who's the haughty foreign girl? That is, this is not like that at all. This is Boaz choosing to do justice. Choosing at great personal cost to take this foreign woman as his wife, to redeem the family line, and provide for her and her family financially for generations to come. In fact, what's, we're shown in this that he doesn't have to do it. There's a cousin... Let's say Boaz is third cousin twice removed. There's another cousin we find out in the story who's not named in the book of Ruth. In fact, in Hebrew, he's called, our translation would be Mr. So-and-so. Because, I mean, really, in Hebrew, it's like Peoni Maloni. It means so-and-so. And, and what, because he's not named because he chooses not to do justice. He's the next in line. He's like too expensive, too great cost. No thanks. He's not a righteous man. But Boaz, at great cost to himself, chooses to do what's costly and right, to feed Naomi's family and to take her, her uh, daughter-in-law as his, as his own and a great personal cost. And what's the result? What's the result of the partnership between Ruth and Boaz? We read it at the end of the book in chapter 4. We just read this part. Naomi is pictured with a baby in her lap. But this is Grandma. And this is what they say. The neighboring women say, a child has been born, not to Ruth, not to Boaz, but to Naomi. See, this is a redemption story about Naomi, who leaves, who leaves empty and comes back full. God reverses it, and her name is changed back from bitterness to pleasantness. What do the neighbors say about Ruth? Your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better, is better to you than seven sons. Now, I know a lot about six sons. I am super proud of my six sons. Better than seven? And what do we learn about God? So they say, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. God is not done. In fact, the word that's associated with God throughout the book of Ruth is this word hesed. 
Hesed is a powerful word in, throughout Hebrew, and it means covenant faithfulness. It means God always finishes the job. God never drops the ball. God never goes to sleep. God always fulfills his promises. And the way that God does that in this passage, in this story, is through a partnership between an unlikely man and an unlikely woman. Two engendered image bearers who partner together for the glory of God and the rescue of the family line. And what results in this? What do we read? This child, Obed, will be the granddaddy of King David, who's the lineage of Christ. The very family of Jesus is, the family line of Jesus is rescued by these two image bearers. So do you see, let me, let me ask this question again. Do you see the story of Ruth? This is a redemption story, but more than that, what is the story the Bible is telling us here about us and gender? Is this a patriarchal book? Think about it. Remember the beginning of this story. The very first verse you read was at the time of the Judges. Judges is famous for being the dark, one of the darkest books in the Old Testament. It is a story of seven cycles of failure and God's rescue of his people. Tremendous disobedience, tremendous oppression. I will tell you as a male reading the book of Judges, it's hard, but the amount of patriarchy and abuse in that book, I'd imagine for a woman, it's even harder. It's a horrible book. And yet, what do we see here? God is setting in his word these two books side by side. See, Ruth is given as a contrast to Judges. It's saying, yeah, in the time of Judges, people were doing whatever was right in their own eyes, but not Boaz and Ruth. They're choosing to honor God. Notice also, isn't it fascinating that this book is named after a woman and a Moabite woman at, the, at that? If the Bible were simply a patriarchal construction, wouldn't we have the book of Boaz, not the book of Ruth? And I mean, after all, he's the kinsman redeemer. redeemer. He's a good guy here. He does a lot of good stuff. And if the book began with a genealogy of Boaz, we might get the book of Boaz. But it seems to me that the whole purpose of the book of Ruth is to answer this question, who mothered Obed and why? What was God up to through Ruth? Amy Bird is a writer who's written extensively about, the Ruth, about this book as a model for how we think about female voices in Scripture. She calls such female voices in Scripture gynocentric interpretation, kind of like gynecology. Okay, women's voices in Scripture, relaying a, women, a woman's perspective. And she looks through studies of Hagar, Hannah, Miriam, Esther, Abigail, many others. And this is what she says. The Bible isn't a book of masculine history. There's women's literature in the Bible, even if it's not what we think of today as women's literature. If there were no gynocentric texts in Scripture... And women played no role in the process of being recognized in the canon, it would be fair to say that maybe Scripture is a patriarchal construction. But the woman's perspective isn't miss missing from Scripture. Women aren't left out, they aren't ignored, they are heard. More than heard, they contribute. But Bird goes on to make the point about this little book. She says, You know, what's interesting is the point of Ruth isn't Ruth, it's God. It's primarily about God. Some people have referenced this little book as sort of a female counterpart to the book of Job. Job is the famous sufferer in the Old Testament who has tremendous loss, like Naomi. And the question of the book of Job is, is God good to his people? 
is God still good to his people? And some people said, well, the book of Ruth really asks the same question with regard to women. Is God good to women? And the answer to that comes in two ways. First, yes, hesed, God's covenant faithfulness. But two, how that's delivered. It's delivered through the partnership between a gendered, two gendered image bearers, a man and a woman who partner together for the glory of God and the redemption of another person. Together, co-laborers, co-heirs. I mean, gender matters in the book of Ruth. It matters a lot. This is a story about gender. So again, what is the story that the Bible is telling us about gender? It's that gender matters. Gender matters in relationship. It's not something we should get rid of. Now, we live in a cultural moment right now where we are very much into what I'll call fortune cookie identity, which is like... Each of us are like a fortune cookie, and on the inside of us is a secret message. And if we look deep within ourselves, we can define who we are based on what's on that little slip of paper. We define who we are. And by contrast, and I understand why we're there as a culture, there's been a lot of abuse. There's been a lot of pain with regard to gender. And so our culture's answer to that is either get rid of it or redefine it and particularly redefine what's in this book. You know, in, the, in response to uh, fundamentalism, you know, taking uh, either 15th century B.C. or 1st century A.D. gender roles and kind of saying that's what it is for all times and places, you know, the response to that has been, no, we need to reinterpret and understand, re- understand how we're going to read the Bible. So one of the most important, or one of the most uh, popular ways of doing so is something that I'm going to call trajectory hermeneutics. So here's where it gets nerdy, but y'all are smarter than the first service, right? So y'all can get this. They had a hard time with it, but I just believe in y'all. So um, you may not understand, know those two words, but you'll get this. Hermeneutics just means how you interpret the Bible. Trajectory is, here's a picture of me in high school with hair, playing basketball, right? And I'm throwing the basketball up, and after it leaves my hand, their trajectory is the pathway the ball travels, right? And the ultimate end point, it follows through, swishing through the net, right? That's the, that's the trajectory. So put those together. This means a way of interpreting the Bible that says, what's the path that the gospel takes, and what's the end point, so let's take an example. Slavery is the, the most famous example of this and uses a justification for doing trajectory hermeneutics. And it goes like this. Well, it seems like the first parts of the Bible are okay with slavery. It seems like that was somehow okay, uh, even among the Hebrews. However, when God's law appeared, it limited what could be done to slaves and provided for a treatment that was humane compared to all the other cultures around. Uh, Such rules show the trajectory that God intended to take regarding slavery. So in the New Testament, masters were admonished to treat their slaves well. Paul referred to a slave as his brother in Christ. This is the trajectory. You follow where we're going with this? Like it's moving toward a place of like restoration, slavery is wrong. According to trajectory hermeneutics, we can follow the path that Scripture naturally sets us on and conclude that God desired the emancipation of slaves. So by, this is what trajectory hermeneutics does. It says, by looking at 
this theme drawn through Scripture, we can look outside of Scripture and see the end point that this is headed to. Now, that sounds really good, doesn't it? And I've heard this argued lots and lots before, but trajectory hermeneutics is not needed with regard to slavery. There's sort of this running narrative that the Bible never condemned slavery. Yes, it did. 1 Timothy 1.10, one of the last books in the New Testament canon to be written, condemns slavery outright. Has plenty of justification enough that Bible-believing Christians in the 17th, 18th, and 19th, and 20th centuries in our country and all over the world should be saying, this is wrong. Final word. There was no need for a lot of argument. This should have shut down the transatlantic slave trade. But people love to use trajectory hermeneutics because it sounds good when, in fact, we really don't need it. But people apply this. This is very common to apply this to issues regarding homosexuality, gender, women in ministry. Why don't we just follow the trajectory of the Bible? After all, doesn't Galatians 3 say, in Christ there's neither slave nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Greek, they're all one in Christ Jesus? But here's where it gets tricky. And I just want you to think about how you read God's Word. The name itself tells you the problem with trajectory hermeneutics. You're looking outside of Scripture to an endpoint that's beyond Scripture. It means we go beyond what Scripture says about an issue. Now, what's the problem with that? If the Bible is somehow incomplete, then who gets to decide what the endpoint is? And where do we stop? Right, you know, if the if logic leads us to a, some kind of ultimate ethic, like our basketball goal, right, then haven't we replaced the authority of Scripture with actually the authority of our own human reason? See, here's the danger: we've made the endpoint of the trajectory our own place in history, our own understanding of people, our own perspective, and that's really dangerous. C.S. Lewis warned uh, the church of what's called what he called historical arrogance. which says, we know better than these people, right? We know better than them. This day, this culture, this perspective is the apex of history. But let me ask you this. Do we really want to say that America in 2022 is what the, the absolute apex of history? I mean, we look around right now, it's a really weird, confusing, conflicted, hard time. I mean, we look back at our sitcoms from 10 years ago and we laugh at them and we wince at them because we're like, ugh, that's sort of, can't believe we laughed at that. I can't believe we, we, you know, we're scandalized by that. Do we really want to say that this moment is the apex of history? Another weakness of trajectory hermeneutics is we assume that we can separate in the Bible between two things, what is cultural or culturally bound and what is timeless. This is how this goes. We end up rejecting the parts that don't match where we live, the perspectives we don't, that we have right now. We're like, oh, that was cultural. That was back then. The parts that we are like, oh, this sounds right. We like this part. That's the timeless parts, like loving your neighbor, uh, not judging, like Jesus. But the danger is that, let's be honest, all of the Bible, this is what Christians believe, all the Bible is cultural, and all the Bible's timeless. Right? This book is written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. I assume none of y'all speak those fluently. Right? 
This is written in a particular time and place to particular people who lived and walked around in a very different world than we do. It's cultural. But we also believe this is God's word that is God-breathed, that's given to his people, that stands the test of time, that is timeless. And so the hard work of interpreting the Bible is always saying this is cultural and timeless. We hold those two things together. We don't separate them according to our preferences. And this is what I want to say. We don't, friends, we don't need to go outside the Bible to some other point on some trajectory. The Bible gives within itself all that we need to be able to, to, be able to uh, navigate these issues and understand gender even in this cultural moment. Like 1 Timothy 1 with regard to slavery. We don't need to go outside of Scripture to find some ultimate hermeneutic of what we think it should say. Ruth is such a great example of this. I love this book. The book of Ruth doesn't need revising or anything added to it because in this book we see, again, two asymmetrical, equal image bearers partnering together for the glory of God and for the redemption of this family line. It's a beautiful picture. This isn't the battle of the sexes. This isn't, uh, you know, leave it to Beaver and Ozzie and Harriet and all those things from the 1950s. It's a beautiful picture of gendered relationships. So if, here's, my, here's my call to us. Instead of editing the Bible, can we let the Bible edit us? Can we let Scripture edit us? If we can listen to the book of Ruth, it has so much to say to us about gender and about our need for redemption and the Redeemer that God gives us. So let me break that down in two parts. First, the part about gender. Let's look at Boaz and Ruth. Boaz and Ruth show us what redeemed gender looks like in this vital relationship. Look at Boaz. Boaz comes and pays an enormous price tag, culturally, personally, financially. And by contrast, we see him compared to Mr. Remember so-and-so, who's passive, who holds back from doing righteousness and justice, holds back from caring for the poor right around him. You know, Mr. So-and-so is like, if you had a good friend who lived, oh, really far away in, let's say, Garner, who was like, hey, our house got burned down last night. We've lost everything. And you're like, well, I'll pray for you. I'll send you a postcard. Hope you're well. I mean, that's what Mr. So-and-so does. By contrast, Boaz is like, pays the highest price in his culture to help redeem this family line and to save this family from destruction and death. He's risky and loving. He leads, he acts, he takes responsibility, he redeems. He's a snapshot of Jesus. And Boaz is not threatened by a strong woman. He doesn't seem to flinch at Ruth taking the initiative, being strong, being decisive, saying what she thinks. Boaz is a picture of us of what it means to be a godly man. One of my hopes as we walk through this material together is that men in our congregation are like, I love being a man. It's a great gift to be a man. You know, and, and not in some kind of either toxic masculinity or some kind of minimizing, but like being a man, that's a gift. That's a wonderful thing. And, and Ruth, Ruth is such a picture of uh, this incredible woman. Like, think about Ruth. She's an immigrant. All immigrants leave their homeland and their family and everything they've known to find a better life in another country. Not Ruth. She's like, I think I'll go leave my homeland, my father, and everything I've known for a worse fate. 
I'm going to tie myself till death do us part with this destitute old woman who has no sons. And she does so and one of the most powerful redemption stories in the whole of Scripture. I mean, the courage, the boldness, the incredible kindness, the way she is working righteousness. Ruth is a redeemer. She's a picture for us of Jesus. And think about Ruth. I mean, Ruth holds up this picture of what it means to be a godly woman. I mean, we could say it's a good thing to be a woman. Being a woman, God's gift, that is a powerful, powerful thing. It's, a, it's an honor. And so, like again, we don't see it, this battle for the sexes in the book of Ruth. We see two image bearers partnering together for the glory of God. The church so much needs to see this right now. Don't you, think, don't you agree? Doesn't the church need to say, be able to say, it's a great thing to be a man. It's a great thing to be a woman. And for us to partner together for God's glory and for the work of God in other people. But the story also shows us again how much who we are apart from Christ and how much we need Christ. You know, Naomi for us is such a picture of all of us. All of us need to have, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to identify with Naomi. Naomi is destitute, hopeless, and futureless. She says, my life has gone from pleasantness to bitterness. As she recognizes her situation is one of uh, incredible loss. And she has no hope. She comes back empty to the breadbasket. And what does she find? She's filled up. She finds the Hesed love of God available for her. Over and over again, Naomi is a model for us of what it means for all of us to come to Jesus. We come empty. We come with nothing in our hands. And Jesus is our ultimate kinsman redeemer. He's like Ruth, where he pledges himself body and soul to us, not just till death do us part, but through death and resurrection. And he's like Boaz, who comes and pays the ultimate price to give us a family lineage and a lasting future, a hope. Brothers and sisters, we live in a culture where either gender is idolized or it's minimized. And God is inviting us into something better. God is inviting us to hear the music, to hear the music of this book that sings to us a better story and a better identity and better hope. Can we hear the words God is singing to us? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. There's nothing like your word. And your word meets us in places, Lord, of where, where it's hard for us to imagine, Lord, that you can work. Lord, we pray this day, Lord, that you would help our church to become more and more a place where we honor what it means to be a man, where we honor what it means to be a woman, that we see redeemed partnerships between men and women seeking the glory of God and the redemption of other people. Lord, we pray this for your glory, for our restoration, and for our joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's respond to God's word in song.